I'm Melissa Chapel. I'm Sophie Williams. Welcome back to our podcast, Autism Biotistics. So today we're going to talk all about disclosing your diagnosis, whether you do or don't. Um, So we're going to talk about different situations and then we're going to go on to the pros and cons in general using our own personal experiences. Um, So to start with, we are going to talk about the decision to disclose. So how you disclose to somebody and whether or not you do in specific situations. So what I've done for this section is split it up into parts. So I think if we start off with relationships, so social as well as romantic relationships, um, whether or not we disclose being autistic. For me now, I think because when I go into a friendship, it's always going to be new sort of after diagnosis and I let people know. And I think it's sort of a safety thing as well as it's part of who I am. So, like, I'll tell people about meltdowns and say, like, if there's a fire alarm and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. that that's a massive sensory thing for me. And just that I won't go to places that's too noisy just because it sets sort of a clear outline of what it's going to be like being a friend with me. And that if I go into meltdown, don't panic, just do these things. And when you say about, like... um disclosing now because it's after diagnosis I think it's a whole different kettle of fish as well because like straight after diagnosis I found it was harder because everyone you're friends with has got these preconceived ideas of you and because they've never seen you as autistic they can't then align that and I got a lot of really bad responses of like oh no the psychiatrist was wrong you're not autistic whereas I've not had that since meeting people after diagnosis because it's the first thing they're learning about you then if you disclose instantly yeah, because I'm not, I was quite isolated at the time of my diagnosis, so I didn't really, <laughs> anyone I knew at that point was also autistic, going through the process, or was a family member of someone who was autistic. And then afterwards, like say with every friendship I went into, it was like, I'm autistic, just from the start. And I think I that's definitely worked out well, and it's been nice because I didn't have as much as it was sort of being isolated at that time from anyone sort of previously I knew, it was definitely had the benefit of I didn't have that. Yeah. Because everyone was in the same boat or we just accepted it as it came with me. And when I meet people, I do tend to just say, like, I'm autistic. I don't think about how to do that. It's very abruptly like, hi, I'm autistic. Yeah, I mean, I won't maybe, like, say from the start unless it's like, it sort of comes up fairly quickly. Like, I won't just... Like, if it comes up, I'll mention it. Yeah. I think, for me, it depends on if you can sense that that person's going to become your friend. Yeah. Then it comes back to what you were saying, of it is a safety issue. There's every chance you could have a meltdown there and then or go into overload. There's things that they do need to know if they're going to be hanging around with you as a friend. I think when I first started college, I was in... My college had sort of what they called the learning assistance space. So it was, like, sort of a quieter room and things for people to go to. And so the people I got talking to in there were maybe people with mental health or, Mm -hmm. you know, anxiety and things or sort of didn't want to face the massive busy canteen. 
and the sort of group I got speaking to, I think it was like two weeks in. And I didn't know all of them that well because it was like the group slowly coming together and they saw me go into full, like really horrific oh, no. meltdown. But what was great is one of my friends, her sister was autistic. Well, is Ooh, that's autistic. Good. So she was so chilled out and just sort of <laughs> let it play out and everyone else was like, what do we do? <laughs> I think like even with disclosure, it's still learning care yeah. for friends, isn't it? But it's just a bit easier that they know that they need to be a bit more mindful and sensitive yeah. in a certain situation. I've been quite fortunate that, especially through college, I knew a few people who had autistic siblings, so <laughs> that definitely makes it easier to disclose, because yeah. then you start off a nice conversation, so. Because I do know somebody um, who's autistic who actually makes the decision never to disclose in the early stages of a friendship until it's like a developed friendship, and the argument for that was, well, if I disclose, they might secretly have a really bad view of autism. And then I will never know and I might be friends with someone I don't want to be friends with. And as much as I respect that, and I completely see the logic of that, for me it's like I'd rather find that out as soon as possible because I think yeah. if it's deep-seated, their prejudice, they're going to say it anyway. Whereas if it's a prejudice that can be moulded, then by being friends with you and learning that you're autistic, then it should hopefully change their view that way. Yeah, I think for me, it's just kind of, it's that way of sort of filtering people out really quickly. Mm -hmm. If you say to someone you're autistic and they have a super bad reaction and are yeah. willing to change and learn, then it's just like, goodbye. You are clearly not suitable to be in my life. I wish you all the best with your views. I <laughs> think with prejudice behaviours, everyone always gets a second chance with me. If they have like an instant knee-jerk reaction that I don't like, yeah. I will insist and explain why that's not appropriate. And if they go, oh, okay, I'm so wrong, you know, I didn't mean that, then that's fine. But if they're going to keep with that view, it's like, okay, you have a nice life. <laughs> yeah, everyone gets to sort of, I'll educate them. But then if they don't sort of adapt and, you know, not be awful about it, it's just I've not got the time yeah. and energy when it's been great. Actually, I've just realised there are some people who I think I didn't really tell from the get-go. Oh, really? Just thinking about it. Um, so I'm an online gamer. And the Discord I go on, I'd sort of been around like once or twice before my diagnosis because it's my brother. They invited me on for multiplayer games. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards, I think some people sort of knew what was going on. Uh, but not everyone did. And then they came up once in conversation and I sort of didn't realise that not everyone knew. Yeah. But it was nice because everyone just went, oh, all right. Yeah. It's nice when it's you're getting that positive feedback as well and you know that it's a bit of a positive for your self-identity when someone just goes, okay. Yeah. And then you start to align it with your personality a bit better as well. Because, I mean, it didn't change anything. I mean, it's only, like, I've been asked the odd question and they know. And sort of, we now laugh that we've, you know, got the disability sort of quota filled yeah. on the Discord. So it's quite, it's quite funny and all in good humour everyone knows my sense of humour, so it's not done nastily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everyone's been really chill about it. Because especially as well for romantic relationships, I know a lot of people are uncertain of, like, when you should disclose. For me, <laughs> with Alex, my partner is instantly like, I'm autistic. It's like, thrown in the deep end of, you're going to learn what this is right now, and I'm going to tell you so you can make a decision. <laughs> See, I do that. I know going in from the beginning... 
because it comes it does come up a lot like i say on sort of like the facebook groups and stuff man it's like when you tell someone and i'm just like well i tell someone from the start because <laughs> they can either handle that or they exactly can't. this is a thing that i always think is people say like oh no you should completely be accepting if someone says that they've got on your divergence and you should always be nice you should always be respectful but if somebody in a relationship sense turned around and said look like I've got too much on I, there's no way that I can help with these specific needs there's no way I can adapt your meltdowns then at least there's that honesty for you to go okay well now I can make a decision whether this is right for me I appreciate the honesty as long as there's respect coming from yeah them. that's the thing I'd never judge someone for saying I can't do that because I'd rather they said that than it got to the point yeah. where I was in meltdown and that and they couldn't handle it because like, I know myself there are sort of times where it is difficult or like so much does need to be adapted especially with like communication and things yeah I know as much as I've not got like any experience of doing this I know going in I have to be honest mm-hmm. and give someone that option yeah I think it's similar with friendships, but there is a different yeah. dynamic there because I think if a friend says, look, I wouldn't know what to do, then you can just meet up in like a group setting or yeah. make sure that you're meeting up on days where you've got a bit more coping and things like that. So it's definitely a bit of a change in dynamic between the two. So the next thing that I wanted to focus on was disclosure during work, so workplace issues. Um, so whether you diagnose at uh, the interview stage, before then, um, after then, there's a lot of talk about this between the autistic community of if you disclose at work, what is the most appropriate point to disclose at work? See, I know that I disclosed from the start. I think, again, I couldn't work for a company that wasn't going to hire me based mm-hmm. on the fact I'm autistic. As much as it's discrimination, it's also like, well, I don't want to work there then because they're obviously not going to be kind. But I think because I do want to pursue academia and do autism research, it kind of comes with the territory yeah. where it's sort of like better to say, oh, look, I'm an autistic <laughs> researcher researching autism. It's great insight. Because I've had a few different experiences with that. Because as you say, academia is brilliant because you're in a department that's looking at autism psychology. So, you know, nobody's going to be cruel. No one's going to be like, <laughs> what, you're autistic? No. And if they are, they shouldn't be <laughs> yeah. doing it. Everybody's been like extremely supportive at the university. I've never had a problem. But in terms of like retail, for me, I had to make this decision because it was at a point where I was transitioning to university. I needed a job. I couldn't afford to say like, you know, I don't want to work for that company if they're rude to me. So I was very careful around it. I wasn't saying, you know, I'm not going to disclose, but I didn't disclose at the interview level. But basically what happened was at interview, I disclosed physiological conditions, not autism. And then once I was employed, I was then like, okay, I'm autistic. Just in case, you know, ever a customer comes in and upsets me or I need a break because I'm in overload, which would only be like a couple seconds. I had to make it known. And at first, it was fine and there was a good reception, but unfortunately, workplace bullying did come into it afterwards. But I don't think that was to do with autism disclosure. That's something I want to stress because I even found out that the physiological stuff that was disclosed was being spoken about to other employees behind my back. So something that you said confidentially in an interview and it was being said in the way of like, oh, that's the only reason she was hired, even though I was completely competent at my job. 
So I can understand why people are scared of disclosure because you don't want to be seen as like, oh yeah, we only hired you because you're autistic or because you're this or that. You, you just want to be respected because you're doing a good job. Yeah, so there's I really think... harsh dynamics there to consider. It's that sort of worry, isn't it? Are you hired when you disclose? Are you hired because you fill that quota? Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to laugh. I've just seen you fail at drinking tea. (laughs) 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 But it is, it's that kind of, or do you want to be hired because you've got the job? Exactly. Because I did a um, week's placement in HR and like an NHS trust when I was at college. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the person who sort of did my training and like introduced me to like everything, she knew I was autistic. And I think the sort of overall like head of the department did, but it wasn't something I openly spoke about. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I didn't really interact that much with the other people. Like I spoke to them and stuff, but it wasn't, I was quite happy with my spreadsheet I was making. <laughs> but I don't, I think if I'd been there longer, I would have. Yeah. But it was still quite new for me at that point because that literally would have been maybe a year and a half, two years. See, it's hard for me to comment because I feel like I have one of the worst possible experiences just working in retail. Oh my day, I know more about this. (laughs) It wasn't a good retail experience. It was like severely not autism friendly. But I think it was important because there were times when I was going into overload where I had to just go into the back. And although some people feel like they shouldn't do that because it's a workplace... The way I was seeing it was my colleagues that smoked were going to have smoke breaks. That helped them to cope. So it was completely fine for me to go and have like a recharge for a couple of seconds and exactly. then come back out. Um, and even if like you just need to do it as a toilet break, you know, it's a break that you need during that day. Which better than you going into overload at a customer or meltdown at a customer. Um, but yeah, it did cause a lot of trouble because like I said, there was bullying and a completely different colleague allegedly said some really harsh things about autistic people when I wasn't there. So yeah, it it just wasn't a pleasant experience, but I still don't regret the choice to disclose. And there was a really great colleague there who, I'll talk about this a bit more when we look at media, but he didn't understand autism. So the only way I could explain it without giving him a big lecture was, right, do you watch Big Bang Theory? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he said, yeah. So I said, right. Everyone always compares me to Sheldon, although Sheldon is not a depiction of autism per se, there are similar traits there, so it's similar difficulties, but not the same sort of amplitude that they show on the screen. So he was fantastic, like he had a little sarcasm sign to help me. (laughs) So there was that side of it too. Yeah, I had because I struggle with sarcasm, one of my friends used to sort of like nod her head and widen her eyes at me. And it came across so patronising, but it saved a lot of misunderstandings. <laughs> the other thing as well is that it, it's not just work. You know, we do encounter multiple different services through our life. And what I faced, like, a really harsh sort of disclosure decision over was... I'm not sure if I've ever told you this before. If we just talk about that much stuff, I lose yeah, track. Yeah, <laughs> we talk about so much stuff. <laughs> but... There was one time early on in my PhD, so I was used to get in the bus alone. I got in the bus alone for like four years through my career already. And I came in to work and basically there's a bit of an issue when you've got an invisible disability about gangway seats, which is like the disabled seats at the front of the bus. (laughs) The way I interpret those seats, bit of a tangent here, but the way I see those seats 
is it doesn't matter what your disability is. If somebody with no disability got on the bus feeling like they were going to collapse, I'd rather they took that seat than me if I was doing okay, regardless of the fact that I've got a disability and they haven't. I think yeah. it should be about your need during that journey, not, oh, I've just got a disability, so I'm going to sit there. So the way I judge it is if I'm not coping, if I'm going to have a meltdown and I need to get off this bus soon, I will sit in a gangway seat. But also, like, if my asthma's bad and I'm scared I'm going to have an attack or things like that, it just feels a bit safer. The problem is when it's an invisible disability, obviously, you do get judgment. And what had happened was somebody had sat next to me. There was plenty of space in the gangway section. Someone had sat next to me and clearly wasn't happy that I was sat there and done everything to make it uncomfortable for me, including, like, physical contact, verbal like abuse basically and in the end they moved thankfully somebody else sat next to me who was very very nice so I felt a bit more comfortable but as I was coming to get off the bus the same person challenged me this person was a lot older than me as well challenged me verbally in front of everybody like very aggressively and by this point I was like in tears overload and just snapped and said you clearly don't know that autistic people exist do you and it was one of those moments where I didn't actually want to disclose but it just sort of comes out in flooded tears yeah So what I started to look into then is like, should I disclose on the bus? And it's something I'd never ever thought about before because I was so used to getting the bus, never had to tell a driver. But I started thinking about the how then and it's like, do I just get on and say, hi, I'm an autistic passenger, (laughs) which might just seem completely bizarre. Yeah, I think because I do the same thing as you and I live in very much a pensioner area Mm -hmm. and sort of I try and time to get the bus when it's not pensioner time when the bus passes activate yeah. and they just overload with the trolleys and everything our people are also lovely but there's there's a wave of them that's <laughs> all i'm gonna say there's a wave of them and i do that same thing like i did it last night and this morning i sat in those sort of singular seats yeah and it's just kind of and you do sometimes feel especially because like both my mum and grandma have got mobility issues so i sort of understand mm-hmm. the need for those seats especially getting on but then it's like no it's just as much as it's not mobility, sometimes I just need to sit in my own yeah. space. See, the thing is, I'd rather someone come up to me and say, right, I use the seat that you're using currently because of this condition. And then we could have a conversation if that's the only seat left. If I wasn't coping and they yeah. were, you know, physically struggling, I'd get up and give them the seat. Mm-hmm. I would never be like, no, this is mine. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's that horrible sensation when someone's just being nasty and they don't need to be nasty. Yeah, like, like you do not need to be nasty about it at all. There's just no need. I'd rather somebody be nosy and say, why are you using this seat? Than just be horrible to me. I can sort of... I'm never quite good at reading sort of strangers' facial expressions. But I can always see, like, the odd looks. Yeah, sometimes. The thing is, it's it's also age as well. Mm -hmm. Because I know myself, like, with a bit off tangent, but my mum, like, she's always had, like, back and sort of knee issues. Mm Mm-hmm. And even before she started using any sort of visible mobility aids, she'd use those seats. And you could always see her getting locked. And especially when I needed to be with her, I'd also sit there as well. Yeah. And you'd always, I sort of always would pick up on that vibe about people being like, oh, why are they sitting there? Because like, I wasn't going to, I didn't have the capacity to sit separately from a mum. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sort of eased off when she started using the walking stick, but it's like, this is why we need to sort of say invisible disabilities exist and I wish mm-hmm. buses had signs. Well, this is the thing. I spoke to Alex, my partner, and he said, do you realise that most people think they're just for elderly people, not disabled people? I said, why would people think that? And he said, because the sign is sort of depicted in like an elderly person with a crutch. 
So exactly. that's wrong because it's not just what they're for. It's it for the use of everyone on the bus who needs those seats there and then. Whether like, they just feel unwell, they've got disability, whatever it is that makes them need to get off the bus sooner. It also, another sort of kind of link that also a bit authentic, disabled toilets are the same. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll use one because I can't deal with the noise of yeah. like a busy toilet. Mm-hmm. And like all the air dryers going off and stuff, so I'll use a disabled one if I need to get in and out because I'm going to go and overload. And it's again the same situation. And I've seen some toilets have that not all disabilities are visible. Yeah, I'm so glad that's coming. like that as well, because it is... Because even, like, with the disabled toilets, I don't know if you've had this when you've been with your mum, is if I've been with somebody else who's disabled and they've been using that toilet and I'm sort of waiting for them, yeah. making sure they're okay, I have had people be very challenging about, like, why is that toilet in use? Why hasn't that person gone into the ordinary toilet? That's like, just because they don't look disabled to you, you've made a judgement here, you can't do this. Yeah. But I did start to think about disclosure in public situations from that. And I did find out for the audience, if you're listening, if this is something you want to do, there are actually cards you can print off online for the bus specifically, where if you're getting on the bus and you're in overload or you're in meltdown and you just want the driver to know that you might be vulnerable or you might suddenly seem to be acting suspicious, you don't want attention drawn to you. You can just show the card discreetly as you get on. Even like as you're scanning your pass, you just hold that card up. Like I've got the National Autistic Society one from a while ago, which is like the autism alert pack. So it's got like your name, emergency contact, and a little information leaflet about what might happen if you're a meltdown. Obviously, I need to get that. It's something I've really been meaning good. to do, but like the bus one as well, because it is, you know, just coming out and saying you're autistic. I sometimes mm-hmm. feel like people will just not believe, especially when you don't meet yeah. people idea of autism i mean you shouldn't have to have you a card that yeah, says it's it so but sad you shouldn't have to but it's also useful but at the same time as well like i spoke to you the other week and um, when i was on annual leave we went for a short stay in manchester and i ran into horrendous overload short story long story short even <laughs> um a lot of stuff went on there was loads of people loads of noise i'd already cried on the train because there was too much going on so i knew i was in overload and I don't know if I told you this part when we spoke about it, but I got off the train at Lime Street and there was just hundreds of people and I got to the barrier. So I queued up at the barrier. I had enough headspace, got to the barrier. It was broken after queuing up in so many people. So it's fine. I'll get into another queue and there was even more people. So the queues were longer and I could feel myself going. And I'm getting into overload and going to have a meltdown. Realised that Alex was on the other side of the barrier. So... Basically, I've got no language delays. I've never had language delays. I'm not deemed as somebody with language difficulties. But despite that, I underestimate the fact that if I'm in meltdown, my speech is not what it should be. Yeah. I can't get words out. I can't express myself properly. And I went up to the disability gate with my tickets. And all I could do was point to the gate I'd just been at and say, could I go through there? I couldn't even think to say, I'm autistic. I'm going to have a meltdown. That was all I could manage to get out. And he said, no. He said, go back to the ticket barrier. So I'm like, ah, the ticket barrier and floods of tears got to Alex, full-blown meltdown. And there are times like that, sadly I didn't have my card on me, but there are times like that where having a card where you can't get the words out, where you don't think to get the words out is so helpful to just be like, right, disclosure instantly, please help me. Yeah, I've got it written down on a revision card in my purse. So I've got, I've not got nothing, but I sometimes feel like the actual official ones would just Mm -hmm. hold a bit more weight than my scribbles. Yeah, but it is. It's I know myself in meltdown. I do lose that capacity. 
And then there's, there's more minor services as well, like the hairdresser. I know that you've got like your hairdresser, yeah. whereas I've just not found no. one ever. So I've always had that thing because it's been different ones each time of in those kind of like low level services where it's just fleeting use. Do you disclose or do you just sort of get through the experience and go home? Uh, my hairdressers, no, because I used them before diagnosis and then they were sort of aware I was going through the process. And But they'd had someone work for them. I um, don't know how long ago it was. They weren't there anymore, but who had Asperger's, so they all knew mm-hmm. about it and they were absolutely lovely. Um, I sometimes find the noise a bit much, but I'm sort of used to the sound of hairdryers from like home and mm-hmm. stuff. So it's not too bad. And my hairdresser is lovely. So I definitely would disclose to a hairdresser because I think there's so much sensory things, but there's so... There's so many things you interact with on a day-to-day basis and it's just so difficult to make that choice. I think with like the lower level services, as selfish as it sounds, it depends on my coping. So yeah, if they're not going to bombard me with questions, if I feel like they've already got a salience of what autism is, if that's the right word, um, then I will tell them. But if I think this person clearly doesn't know and it's going to be a lot of explaining and it might distress me, then for my own well-being I might just go no not time to disclose what I sometimes find because when I was setting up savings accounts with the bank took my mother mm-hmm. so I sort of had a buffer if something happened but it's yeah. like so much information it's sort of like a different sort of disclosure my mum will say oh she's anxious yeah she has bad anxiety because people accept that easier and it doesn't need explanation mm-hmm and it was just, can you go a bit slower? And I found sometimes, I'll maybe not disclose I'm autistic, but can I just say, can you just give, give, give me a minute? Yeah. And that works the same way. So it's sort of disclosing a specific problem I'm going to face rather than mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole thing. I think it's also about like what you're going to cope with. I know exactly. that as much as I might break after the hairdressers, <laughs> I can get through it. Whereas anything medical, whether it's the dentist, the optician, a doctor disclosure is instant it's yeah. like no I'm autistic because there's always going to be a point where I can't find the right words for pain I'm in or I need a certain adaptation to be made it's always very very relevant when it comes to medical stuff yeah see I've got my GP was the one who sort of handled like mental health stuff and mm-hmm. when we sort of were going through the um, autism diagnosis he sort of knew everything that was going on so it's easier with him and he's fantastic with it and my dentist again so i've been using her sort of prior to things so we just yeah. said oh sophie's autistic and she was like that's okay that's fine and she's really quite relaxed and chilled out anyway but she um said to me i need to go to the hygienist and i was just like nope no new people no new people <laughs> that will not happen and it's just kind of like yeah unless i see that a hygienist has got um autism training documents <laughs> i am not going near one I've also heard she's quite stabby about oh, no. surgery. So I'm like, she's saying to me, go and tell and I'm thinking, I can know my horror story from my grandma yeah, saying she was stabby. And I'm well. just, like, I struggle to brush near my gums. I'm not letting some woman with, like, a pokey thing come at me, you know? I also feel a bit responsible as well when it's magical stuff because I know that they're going to have other autistic patients. Yeah. And the research from me comes out because I've read papers that, especially, like, GPs and opticians and stuff where it's not specialised they've often got like really stereotype views of autism. They yes. don't even know what autism is. So I feel a need to be like, right, I'm autistic. This is what this means for me. So then they can use that knowledge going forward, hopefully. I think that's the thing when you disclose, you've also got to give 
what that means for you individually. Yeah, definitely. So like, I know things for me might be processing time mm-hmm. or like sensory issues and just kind of explain things to me or I'll ask more questions because I want more specifics. And I think that's really important to do with disclosure, especially in medical environments. Like doctors don't tend to have much time because you're dealing with like a medical yeah. problem as well. But the nicest thing that happened in that regard was when I told a new optician that I'd seen because my old one had just left the job basically. And she said to me, look, I'm going to have other autistic patients. Like, what should I know about optometrics? I know. I was just like, yes. So I told her, like, right, even if they don't have migraines, expect light sensitivity. So explain everything you're going to do, especially when it's light or coming up close to the person's eye. And always ask about things like, do they want tints on their glasses? Be very explanatory about everything. Don't assume anything and ask open questions about things and know that it might be very uncomfortable, even though it's nothing too invasive to have your eyes tested. If I start not being able to see things or things are a bit fuzzy, I'll go. I think that's another reason why disclosure is so important, though, is like where you're so reluctant to go that you know it's going to be really uncomfortable mm-hmm. just being able to say right if I freak out don't worry just talk to me yeah <laughs> ask what's going on because <laughs> I take my mum to every appointment so it's kind of if something happens she'll solve it I think the hard thing with autism is it's a mixture of disability and identity yeah because like you would probably not consider unless it was relevant disclosing like your religious views or your sexuality if you're just in an ordinary situation very fleetingly with people you're not going to remain close to. But with disability, like, I never considered should I tell people when I had a heart condition, it was always absolutely they need to know. And autism falls in that awkward balance of neurodivergent identity, but also probably need to know for disability circumstances too. As well, because you see there's always debates about is it a disability or not, and I think it comes down to the individual, so I'd always class myself as a disabled person. Mm -hmm. For me, autism is a disability, but that's not in a negative way, which is another thing that everyone's saying, being disabled isn't inherently Mm -hmm. awful. I've always seen autism as a social disability, because if we adapted the whole world, if everyone was autistic, or there was just like a few neurotypicals, they were the minority then the world would probably be designed in a way that we weren't disabled. Sensory issues would be a thing, but we could control them. Yeah. So environments would be adapted, whereas because realistically we don't, we live in a world that's not designed around neurodivergency, then it is a disability. But it's not that there's something inherently wrong with being autistic, it's just environments aren't accessible, but that's true of most disabilities, yeah. really. That's the thing, if you take away steps and stuff, everything's real accessible. <laughs> and put in decent, actual, uh, disabled toilets. Yeah. Yeah, trying to think of any other sort of disclosure. Everyone's been really good on the whole for me. I've had, like, an overall... There's been one person who was quite close to me. Um, they didn't react very well. Um, but everyone's kind of... It's been mostly like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's been most people's yeah. reactions, which I think is actually really nice. Yeah. Because I don't want it to be made a big deal of. I'm letting someone know for external reasons or it's important to me. I always let people know I'm willing to like have questions asked about me. Yeah. And that I've got like no issues discussing it. But it's not... See, I always got, what does it mean to be autistic? Which, We've discovered, yeah, that I've never <laughs> been asked. But also, <laughs> it's really hard to introspect on that. So I tend to have a few examples or specifics yeah. that were important for them to know. Like, right sensory issues, overload, meltdown, <laughs> things that were yeah. absolutely no, you need to know this, even if I can't explain it properly otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I think 
the best one. One of my my friends at uni, Poppy, who you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're actually talking about once we were sitting sitting in Greg's as we do, and we, she said to me when I like said to her, because we were sort of involved in the same sort of like volunteer voluntary work at the uni mm-hmm. within the department before we became friends. Yeah. So we were kind of like acquaintances, and I sort of said it like sort of from the start because I knew there were people I'd be interacting with regularly. Mm-hmm. And I think also with being a psychology department, it feels safer to disclose things <laughs> psychological in nature. And so we were talking and she said, when like I told her, she was very much a just, oh, okay. And but she said, she approached it with, I can either ask loads and loads of questions or just accept it <laughs> and deal with things as they come up. And I was just like, I love you for that. <laughs> and because it's, it's true, that is the approach yeah. is. I'm always happy to ask questions, but I know yeah, some people who aren't. Yeah, I think it's nice so to have I a think... mix of both. Yeah. So you get that instant, right, these are the important bullet points kind of thing, but then at the same time they're just mm. adapting to you rather yeah. than learning about autism. Because that's the problem, isn't it, when you look at the DSM, is like the DSM and the ICG are telling people what autism is, but without the consideration of the person. Exactly. So it's up to then like the doctor to consider the individual person and how things change and look different in them. And it's the same with disclosure. It's like, right, it's okay for you to go and learn what autism is. Just realise that it changes by individual traits and circumstances. I think that's a really important thing for people to sort of take note of. So, pros and cons yes. of disclosure. <laughs> so, this is sort of, do you think it's worse disclosing to someone who's close or a complete stranger? Like, what situation do you find worse? Because I think... For me, it feels like when it's someone close, as much as you maybe not develop the friendship with someone, if you know you kind of like to and get that feel, yeah. or if it's family, it feels so much more pressured, like if they're gonna react mm-hmm. badly, but when it's... Yeah. Or like, especially when it's like a medical service, when it's like, it can be so catastrophically bad. Yeah. And it can have, especially if there's like not another GP or it's really difficult mm-hmm. to find someone else. Whereas, like, with random people, just in passing, I don't know, or maybe encounter once or twice, but have to let them know in that situation, it's kind of, like, there's not as much repercussions to that. You see, like, like I said to you before, it was different after diagnosis. Like, my family were fantastic because there was already autistic family members. They'd already learned about everything. But with friends, it was horrible because some of them were really lovely. One turned around to me and said you're just you and this is just an explanation of everything we've always known about you and that was really lovely but the rest of the friends were like no we never thought of you as autistic so you can't be <laughs> that was a problem but after diagnosis it's always a bit easier with strangers because I find it easier to call out a stranger and be like yeah. no what you're doing is not okay because what I always think about I was reflecting on this before but I thought it's not relevant to the podcast well hey it's coming anyway <laughs> We do. We do autism <laughs> with tangents. It's what we do here. Um, is that one issue I've always noticed? I don't know if it's been said about me. It's something that people tend to say behind your back. But other autistic people I've known, um, it was said behind their back were around me, which obviously I then spoke up on their behalf that they had trouble with authority. And I'm like, no, that's a misunderstanding. I don't think autistic people do have trouble with authority. Like, I have the utmost respect for my supervisors. They've got so much wisdom and knowledge and life experience. I will go to them over things. I respect them so much. 
But what we do have is when somebody who's supposed to be an authority figure does something horrible or wrong, we're not scared to call that out. Exactly. I think it's that moral... It's a very strong moral compass, exactly. I've found. Thankfully, I've not had it much, but especially in like the medical field. like My GP now, the surgery's fantastic on Fultland, but the original one I had, everything was always you're anxious, this isn't a real problem, and it all turned out to be real physiological stuff. And so I wasn't ever scared to say, this isn't right what you're doing to me. Just because you're a doctor, I respect you. I know that you've got a doctor's knowledge, but you are not being respectful to me as your patient. And I'm not scared to enter that dynamic. Yeah, I'm also, I'm definitely someone I do call people out, um, regardless of their station, because I think Mm -hmm. for me that's more of a yeah, And I think it's also that willingness that I will pursue a complaint because I think so many people will say, oh yeah, that's not on. Mm-hmm. They won't act on it. Whereas yeah. I'm like, no. Alright, a strongly worded letter. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I find that a bit easier if it's a stranger to just be like, right, I'm autistic. And then if they do something that's not okay around that disclosure to be like, no, please don't do that. Explain where it's wrong and move on. I find it okay to be very abrupt with a stranger, but it's the emotion when it's someone close to you. It's like the heartbreak of if someone says something nasty or you've just found a really great friend. Or like yeah. with Alex, I was so scared because we knew each other prior. And I was like, oh, what if he says something horrible and then this just breaks down? Like that will really upset me. Thankfully he didn't. He was just like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can't even have a fight with my mum. I was like, I'll feel really guilty afterwards and I'll come back downstairs and I'm sorry. Yeah. And she's like, it's fine. So it is always the hard part. And I think because with me as well, I have the thing of if somebody is so ignorant that it hurts me and there's no apology afterwards and they can't yeah. say what they've done wrong, I will cut them off. And it's sad when it's somebody you don't want to enter that consideration with. And it's like, right, I've got to tell them something really awkward now. And there's a lot of trepidation then of like, oh, should I tell them? Should I not tell them? Yeah, it's got, especially when it's someone, especially when it's like sort of a network of people, like family mm-hmm. and friends and networks. So there's like, there's a sort of ripple effect with whatever happens, usually. So I think, so we've touched a lot on sort of the downsides of like stigma and having the bad reactions and yeah. ignorance. And I think, one of the things about disclosing is even though I've had this really overall fantastic, really positive like experience, yeah. I'll still build it up because it's not just my mm-hmm. stories, it's other stories. Like I know yours, I know the internet, like the community is like, there's so many yeah. of these really horrific experiences, people I'm close to, people I know. And it's just, it's so anxiety inducing mm-hmm. building up to that point. Yeah. Like, especially when I was disclosing for uni, I knew I couldn't come to uni and not disclose. I knew I had to from the start and to access all the support and everything, but it's still so scary because you worry if it's going to affect everything. And it's just... I mean, that regardless of disclosure or not, that's always going to be there, and that's just this awful truth. Yeah. And it's not easy to deal with. University Liverpool, fantastic with me. They've done everything over and above to make sure... I had as much support as would make me flourish. And they just worked with me right the way through. Our department is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The psychology department. Is See, I didn't ever really go to the psych department. I know you did. I went yeah. to student services. Um, student services And as they well. looked after They're me the amazing. whole time. But I know that the psychology department, especially now, is much more involved. And you can just go and speak to lecturers about stuff. And they're usually fantastic on that. Yeah. I think most of my lecturers now 
um, came out the thank you evening. <laughs> it's told in another podcast. Um, so that's the thing. It's no secret. I'm an autistic student. But that's the thing. Like, student services, like, everyone was really... We, I was remember sitting in, like, this support meeting and just... Because my mum was there and we'd gone from, like, my college, which wasn't mm-hmm. as good as it could have been. And then university was just a whole other level of this is fantastic. Yeah. And they actually sat down and asked me, what do I need? And I think that's the really important thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, previously there'd been a lot of, like, overarching assumptions. Whereas yeah. uni sat down and went, oh, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And even now, like, I've just been told, just let us know if something changes. Like, even, like, the school I went to was fantastic. I didn't know I was autistic then. But, I like, I had so much support. They were fantastic. But when I stayed on for college, I did have problems in the way they treated me. When I disclosed that I was going through a lot, that I was being diagnosed, there was nowhere near the support I needed. Whereas the school was fine. So there's always a constant dynamic change when you go into a new place as well. Yeah, which is that's the thing. There's never any consistency yeah. to it. Because I know that, you know, if I leave this university and and work at another one I'm still like mm-hmm. are they gonna be good yeah there's that and anxiety that, again it's that, that kind of like and again this is where uh, autism research is kind of the safer career path oh, yeah. it's kind of like well you assume they're gonna be good so next con I came up with my very extensive list um stigma <laughs> that is see this is the thing of even despite the problems I've had in the workplace whenever autistic friends or family members talk to me about this, I always say, always disclose at work. Because even though it can go horrendously wrong, Mm -hmm. you're in the right then. And there are legal supports for this. Go to an advocacy network. I honestly didn't get the support I needed. I complained to head office. I'd done everything the way it was supposed to be done. And they didn't do enough. And I wish I'd had the headspace to go to an advocate. Because there are free advocacy services that will help you and will get involved and will go, right, no, this is not happening anymore. Um, It's hard when there's no proof of things like bullying and stuff, but there will usually always be somebody that will have your back and say, yeah, something's not right here and I've noticed it too. So always disclose because you still need those adjustments made. You still need to look after yourself. I always see it that way of like, you look out for you, you do what's right for you. And if someone else doesn't do what's right for you, then you have that dealt with. You don't think, well, what if they're going to do this to me? I suppose it depends though, doesn't it? Because there's some situations outside of like work where it could become a safety issue. Yeah. It's just so hard. This is the thing you've got to take every single, and I'm such a paranoid overanalyzer. Like, if it can possibly go wrong, I will have thought of it. It's great. It's great doing ethics forms. Like, what could be harmful about this research? And I'm like, right. (laughs) Could be the the nicest thing. It's like, could be a lot. But, like, I'll sit and I'll overanalyze every single situation. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, what? And, like, sort of plan, like, every scenario. And that's such an exhausting process it as is. well. But we also have to because we've we had to. these bad experiences. It's such a real... And even if you haven't, even if, like, me, you've had this overall, it's still mm-hmm. such a concern. Because you know it can happen. That's exactly. This is the thing. So it's, like, not even based on your own past experiences. I don't even think this is, like, an autism thing. I think this is just a minority thing. Yeah. If, if there's something that isn't externally obvious about you then you've got to consider you shouldn't have to and that's what angers me about it is you should always be able to just do what's right for you and you know be very open about who you are and wanting people to know things about you but there just sadly are situations where it could become a safety issue for people to know that 
And then it's so worrying, especially like in the workplace. I can imagine, especially if people are diagnosed later. Mm-hmm. If you've got like a house and bills and stuff to pay. Yeah. It's that worry as well. Mm-hmm. And I think even like me going in for the future, it's kind of like, well, I want to be able to like, you know, have yeah. to pay bills and have a place to live and all those things. And it's kind of like, it's a worry. It's a worry. And it's, way enough the cost but as you say it shouldn't be like that the thing is like this is why i chose to disclose after the interviews because i wasn't gonna hamper my chances at getting a job that if i didn't get into university i wasn't needed um but at the same time it's like i knew that i would need adjustments that if i didn't explain that i was autistic could have gotten me into trouble like why do you need breaks why are you behaving this way why do you need information told to you in such a way because like with me I need I would do any job in the workplace but I needed someone to say right these are the jobs that I need to do and these are the ones that we would like yeah. you to do otherwise I won't know I can't just look and, and see something and pluck it out unless it's my own work I can do that with my PhD because I know my workload but when you're entering like somebody's shop you don't know what they need doing and unless they tell you explicitly when you're autistic you don't always see it I find that I hope, and my mum doesn't understand this, I'm playing this to her, this exact <laughs> bit I'm going to say to her. I won't, like this morning, because we've got like a space under the stairs and I'll stack my shoes there. And I'll wear like multiple different shoes. But it doesn't occur to me to take a pet extra pair up with me. Yeah. Mainly because it doesn't bother me having shoes underneath the stairs. <laughs> people live in the house, people wear shoes. And then like this morning she had me take your cowboy boots upstairs and I'm like, but okay, okay. I'll do it. But it just doesn't occur to me. And even yeah. when there's like all these mysterious jobs and I'm like, how do you know these exist? <laughs> but again, like you say, when it's my own workload, mm-hmm. like this week I know this needs to get done, this needs to get done. And then it's easier to sort of like plot yeah. it. But if it's written out explicitly. I think as well, like work and even like medical services, you've got legal protection. Exactly. No one can be too bad to you because there are legal rights that you have as an autistic person or as just anybody person, in a minority. A yeah. um, and there's also ways to go about reporting it. If yeah. it's just some random person being just... But yeah, it's hard awful. when it's a situation where there's no institutional protection because although you've always got legal protection, obviously, there are situations where something could make you vulnerable before you get help basically like i mean look at unfortunately what was happening in care homes yeah to people that's a situation where they had to disclose because it was relevant but it was exploited they were vulnerable people and sometimes there are situations where your safety has to come first i can't think of an example but i know that i will mask a lot if i'm in a situation where i'm not coping and i don't feel safe if there's not any people around or if all of a sudden I feel like there's gangs around or there's somebody actively kicking off. Like, I've, I've walked past, you know, everybody has. You only have to go through a city centre when it's, like, drinking hour and there'll be a kickoff. Yeah. And instantly you're, like, right, head down. Merge into the environment. Just get away from the situation it's because like speed you don't up want to draw wall, attention. Like, yeah. It's like, quick, go. I think as well, especially it's, like, meltdown in public it's like mm-hmm. desperately like hold off to get home i've done that and just sort of like got into the door and just burst into tears and i was like you're all right and i'm like mm. i also i don't think i've disclosed just sort of a situation if i have my own house and i have workers coming in 
because there's so many difficulties, although there's so many that would yeah, never do this. Yeah, I don't think I There's, would. like, rogue traders, isn't there, where if they know you're vulnerable, they might think they can pull a fast one on you with, like, five yeah, ounces exactly. or something. So, yeah, no, I wouldn't in no, that situation. No, and I don't think... I think that's times where I'd be, like, give us a set to, like, just process this yeah. and, like, read things over. It's like, can you write this down for me? Where are I? Because most of the workmen that come into my house and my uncle's mates, so... I mean, I'm I very scared of my grandma. <laughs> suddenly hyper aware of the fact that we're doing a podcast. <laughs> Everyone knows <laughs> our names now and that we're autistic. <laughs> so clearly we've got a level of we're just happy to tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. If any employer does a search on my Twitter, <laughs> it's like me calling myself the Sofness monster or autism stuff. Because <laughs> the thing is, like, I'm at a point where I am so happy with it. I understand autism exactly. so much. That even if I was in a situation where I probably wouldn't have, like, say if a worker came and they knew about the podcast, I wouldn't care that much because I'd be like, right, I own this. This is my identity. I know my rights. And I would just prepare myself of, like, what I should expect and what would maybe be a sign that something is happening that shouldn't be. But this is just years of self-adjustment and learning about ourselves as autistic people, I think. Whereas there were times, even though we're doing the podcast now, where I probably would have thought, oh, I just don't want that many people to know, or I don't want that person to know, or that group of people. I just feel like I've gotten past that because the neurodivergence movement has helped me massively. It's like, no, it's okay. It's a really great thing. You can just be happy and autistic. (laughs) I think definitely saying that, like thinking back now, for me, it was so much harder to disclose when I was sort of just adjusted and before Mm -hmm. I like fully was like, yeah, I'm autistic, I'm great. Um, it's definitely harder and I think so with the neurodiversity movement and I think especially when like we're doing the advocacy stuff we're doing it is owning it and I think as well confidence in yourself and like things and that's come with time so I'm like really happy and also knowing what to say when I disclose and also Mm -hmm. having this sort of if someone makes an ignorant comment having the comebacks or being like well it's this actually the hard thing is, like, the neurodivergency movement. I love it. I absolutely love it. And everyone links to it. It's fantastic. But I've known some people to take it a bit too far. I think, yeah, obviously, if, if somebody's autistic and they've got a negative self-view, it's fine to, like, intervene and explain to them that they don't have to have that view and try and support them. But yeah, it's about I, being supportive yeah, and nice with it. Because I saw a situation at a conference... Again, I'm not going to name names. It wasn't, like, an academic conference. It was, like, an autism-related one. Um, And there was somebody who had sort of half-disclosed that they were neurodivergent but didn't say any more than that. And I saw somebody approach them and start getting quite mean and saying, no, 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 you've got a responsibility to tell people. And I just thought, no, like, we need to be respectful of the fact that even though a lot of us are so happy to disclose, we need to respect that not everyone will. And there are reasons for that that we have to respect. You can't start telling people you've got to disclose and wear it as a badge. If they don't want to, that's fine. I think there's that other thing, like I've seen it mentioned on Twitter a few times, where it's saying if you're autistic, you don't have to become an advocate as much as many of us are. Yeah, it's so true. It's fine not to. Mm -hmm. It's fine to just go about your life and just... That's part of you. You don't have to... Exactly use it in any way to be an advocate there was the article i sent you but that made me really uneasy and it was temple grandin who of course is like a really great veterinary scientist and has advocated for autism throughout the years but she wrote a post saying that it upsets her when autistic children go on to focus solely on them being autistic and i can understand of 
if you don't want to be an autism advocate, you don't have to be, you know, if you just want to be a scientist or something completely different, go do that and then decide to disclose at your own pace. But I also think that what she wasn't acknowledging is that some of us really love to focus in on like autism research or being an autism advocate. And we do need those people. We can't discourage everyone because yeah. we do need advocates. I think I, like, literally from the minute I got diagnosed, I've been doing advocacy. Yeah. And like, we took a break from when I was at uni, but like, because we've been doing talks at University of Liverpool. Um, and for me and my mum, that had been sort of us getting back into mm-hmm. it, especially for my mum, she'd not been involved. And it was so nice. And we didn't realise how much we'd missed it. Because with me, it was when I was an undergraduate, I went to see a talk by Eleanor Longdon. Um, if you don't know who she is and you're listening, uh, YouTube Eleanor Longdon, um, look at her TED talk, she's fantastic. Eleanor um, experiences hearing voices and is so positive about it and has completely revolutionised how people view voice hearers. And seeing that, like, live in action and hearing her experiences, I thought people need this for every condition in psychology. People need to see the real experiences and that not everything is a negative and we don't need to pathologise everything. So... For me, that was the decision in when I was then offered the opportunity to talk about being autistic. I was like, I'm going to do this because there might be other autistic people there who need to hear it or a neurotypical even that needs to hear autism is not a negative. So that was sort of a slow path into advocacy. But I also think if you're in autism research, there's always a small element at least of you are kind of an advocate as well. You should do run research on behalf of autistic people, whether you're autistic or not. You have a responsibility to be respectful and do that in a positive light. And that leads me very nicely into the praise. <laughs> and I think supporting other people and mm-hmm. being able to be I'm autistic and it connects even like there was someone in like my IT class at college who's also autistic, but and I, I mentioned it and stuff, and we have like this half hour conversation about like lights in college and how awkward <laughs> they are. And it's just that like yeah, and I think by disclosing mm-hmm. You can make other people feel more comfortable and yeah. have those connections because it was great. It was so random because mm-hmm. we talked before. We were all quite interactive in my IT class. It was great. It was a really good class. But it was just nice to have that specific. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. those lights in this light hallway are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a really lovely experience. Like, I don't think I've ever had it where I've disclosed and then it turns out, oh, that person's autistic too, but I have met autistic people where we've both been aware that we're autistic and just like even when we became friends just being able to have that safe space to talk about stuff that only people in that circle of autistic people get it's just such a relief to not have to over explain everything as much as I'm fine doing that yeah sometimes it's just just having your safe space to just chat about stuff and the way we see the world and I think that's really nice it's not just within autistic people I mean there's still an element of it but like a lot, like the first advocacy stuff I was doing, it was within a parent support group, mm-hmm. and I think it's also a safer feeling around much autistic people, but also the families people connected to it, because yeah. it's this: if someone has a meltdown, it's gonna be completely fine, and no mm-hmm. one's gonna like start giving dirty looks. Because like, I know this ties into your research, but there is a lot of demonization, if that's a word, of autistic family, like members of autistic. I can't even think how to wear this. My words aren't coming out right now. <laughs> Try doing research on how difficult it is to re- like word it right. without being like <laughs> family members of autistic people. That's what. 
<laughs> could not get that yeah. out in a proper string of sentence. Where's it going for me right now? <laughs> <laughs> so family members of autistic people, there's often like a really negative view because there have been quite a few instances. Yes. But I've also seen accounts and I completely agree with it. Like if you see a family member saying something problematic, doing something problematic, don't assume that they're a bad person because the problem is if you don't know anything about autism and all of a sudden you find out your family member's autistic, you won't always get to the positive information first and that's why advocacy exists is to try and get that information to you eventually. And that's why that that's person. why it's my research director yeah. doing stuff like that because it's so important. Like me and mum, like you have to navigate so much. Mm-hmm. And the thing is you are going to hit the stereotypes and the negative stuff exactly. first. And even like ABA unfortunately sometimes get there first and I read Damien Milton's um, paper on the double empathy difficulty in neurotypicals and autistic people communication. And what he was saying is that ABA is bad, but it doesn't mean people who are considering it are bad because often the first thing a parent will hear is, you've got this time slot to help your five-year-old before it's too late and parents panicking and what can yeah. I do please tell me what to do and then it's like oh well you can go into ABA and it's like oh thank god we can have the intervention now and they're not taking yeah. any time because they've been rushed into thinking you've got this window of time and I think that's like one of the first things I say to people is say that like they'll get there mm-hmm. like a lot of the things like the milestones I sort of hit like I didn't have language delays or anything yeah but even just like things like just being like sort of social things, like mm-hmm. wanting to do certain things, it came a few years later than peers. And I think it's about saying to people, like, it'll happen, it just takes a bit longer, and that's mm-hmm. fine. Because I think there's so much of a rush, and like you say, you get told there's this time slot. And there's also the thing of like, you can intervene. Exactly. Without having to do anything horrendous like ABA. Because I've known people who like, they've had an autistic child, autistic child has had language delays. You can still support that child the way you would a neurotypical child, like un- understanding that they're not picking up on language the same way and then just trying to simplify it a bit. Yeah. So this is what this word means. Instead of just using language rapidly, slowing it down a bit or giving prompts, it's okay to do those supportive interventions to help the person, but don't try and like condition them or do anything invasive because that's just wrong. You need to consider yeah. ethically that that person's a person. Exactly. Kids of people too. Exactly. Autistic kids of people too. <laughs> I think. You know what? When you get a good reaction, it restores my faith in humanity. <laughs> like, that's exactly what I've got written down here. <laughs> when someone's like, when you hear so much things, someone goes, oh, that's like, intre- or, like someone asks questions, or someone's like really positive or just isn't awful about it, just like, yeah. you exist. <laughs> You're not all evil, and it's just, it's just it nice. nice. It's all doom and gloom. I don't really mm-hmm. use anymore. It's just... I mean, to be fair, I've probably not had as many yeah. negative reactions as positive, realistically. Yeah. It's just that the negative ones have the bigger impact, like mm. running home crying or just meltdown. Yeah. And uh, I did have a situation... <laughs> all these horrible experiences. I'm so sorry. Like that, all positives to this. This is what I'm here for. For just everyone's <laughs> just gone. Oh, all right, that explains a lot. <laughs> but there was a situation where I won't say the situation is too obvious, but this person knew I was autistic, or should have known anyway. It was part of this context that they were supposed to find out I was autistic in advance. 
and they stood there and said really, really horrible things about autistic people. They made jokes at autistic people's expense. And I was just sat there mortified, like, do I leave the room? Do I make this obvious? Do I say something? And in the end, I just went, I'm autistic. Like, I research autism, please stop doing this. <laughs> and the person carried on and I got home, absolute meltdown, because it's so draining to have someone do that to you. But thankfully, it's mostly positive. And as much as, yeah, you should give people a second chance, is what I meant with the parents, because there was a famous parent, I don't know her name, where she was supporting Autism Speaks until the autistic community went, please don't do that, like, this is what they've done. And she was so sorry. She said, yeah. oh my gosh, I didn't know. And she then went with what the community were telling her. And that's okay. It's okay to get it wrong and then be it's like, about right, giving I acknowledge I'm wrong. Exactly. I think it's when people go, I'm not going to change. But as much as you have to give people a second chance, if you've given them a second chance and they're still being horrible to the nah. point of this is not right, you still have to walk away. Like, you have to do self preservation. Cut them off. Yeah. <laughs> I think to finish, when people disclose, when people, when you disclose to people, what do you, what is what we want people to say? Sorry, like, what, was what that? do we like? I'm really unclear about this. We'll start again. When like, you disclose <laughs> to people, what reaction? Like, what's a good reaction from people? Because to be honest, I find oh okay quite a good reaction. I think I don't need it to be invasive. I've had such bad reactions that anything that was not bad is okay <laughs> <laughs> them low standards there <laughs> yeah I think for me it's just don't it doesn't need to be made a huge deal it's about context it. dependent isn't it because yeah. if they're saying oh okay and then they're going to be indifferent and they're yeah. going to ignore you during meltdown yeah, and that turns like, out to not be okay yeah like maybe for friendships it's like that's fine okay mm-hmm. it's only fun but like medical professionals like I expect yeah. a certain level of okay oh, yeah. And then they adapt to sort Completely. of what they should know. Like what Poppy's done of like, okay, I'm going to learn about you as we go along. Fantastic. Yeah. Questions, fantastic. As long as you're not imposing your own views or stereotypes. Exactly. Um, as long as you're not upsetting the person being mean. It, like you don't have to go over and above. Or coming back to the double empathy problem, as always. If you're neurotypical, you do have a responsibility to meet autistic people halfway. Yeah. Because I think what you need to know is that every conversation we have with you, we are using all of our coping, we are doing everything to try and communicate in a way that you will understand us. Mm-hmm. That isn't easy and comfortable for you, so it's like, give give that back. Yeah, Make I think it it's that so case of like, meet in the middle, realise we're doing a lot and you can do things too. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not expecting someone to completely change from me because that's what people expect from us and that's not right. But I think for me, it's about, yeah, learn, like what we were saying about we're yeah. individuals, you're autistic, but there's mm-hmm. no overarching, it's this, this, and this. It's like, learn the individual. I also don't even think that you have to do anything over the top. No. All you have to do is don't put constraints on the conversation. So don't expect eye contact and don't push the point if the person doesn't make it, don't see it as rudeness or lying. And, you know, if the person communicates literally, you don't have to start communicating literally, but be very clear, explain yourself. Um, don't be mad if the person doesn't want to use metaphors or doesn't want to talk about social constructs. Try and like find what works for you both because every conversation is going to be different. Just 
go with the flow. The example I always use is I had an Italian friend. I say had, but not for long. I just haven't seen her in a while. <laughs> She's gone now. <laughs> she didn't know much English. She was learning English. I didn't know much Italian. I was learning Italian. Oh gosh, this is already off to a good start. <laughs> no, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, like it's a fantastic way, but you just know it's going to be funny. <laughs> What we done is we use what we knew naturally. We didn't sit and say, right, what do you know in English and what do you know in Italian? We just went, we used gestures, we used anything that each would understand, whether it was typing it out, translating it, whatever worked for that conversation. So we used what she knew in English and what I knew in Italian to piece together a conversation. And if you use every, if you do that for every conversation, like to be fair, if you were talking to someone in a different language you would completely use everything to try and make that conversation work if you had to have that conversation. But people aren't as willing to do that when it's two people from the same country speaking the same language. And we need more of that. Like, right, we're not going to put any assumptions. We're not going to put any stereotypes. Let's just see what makes this conversation work between these two people. Yeah. You know, I've just realised. <laughs> we're like, I think... That's like sort of everything I want to talk about. <laughs> Sorry. And I think, no, it's fine. It's a fantastic finishing point. But I've just realised we've not had any animal analogies this week. Oh, I know. Doing well. We are doing well. <laughs> but yeah, I think like what you were saying, it's just like, as much as it's still the same language, it's still different communication. Yeah. So it's still... It is completely different. And I think like, don't focus too much on how do I communicate with an autistic person. No. Just focus on what will make this conversation work well. <laughs> yeah, and it's a bit trial and error. Because mm-hmm. even, like, I know I can use some metaphors, won't get others, some autistic people can't use any. <laughs> I don't tend to use them properly, so, like... Yeah, truly. What, what's the real one? Is it pull on your arm or pull on your leg? Pull on your leg. Well, I kept saying to my mum, stop pulling my arm, <laughs> and she would just, like, erupt into laughter <laughs> because I didn't know that metaphors don't apply that way. I thought, like, you could apply it to any limb, not just, like, oh, there's this one saying. <laughs> it's also confusing when Alex told me that he was from Beirut, and I was like, that's not a real place, that's from a metaphor. <laughs> My geography's dreadful. <laughs> Poor Alex. <laughs> I wanted, like, I was so used to people making jokes on my expense, I thought that's what he was doing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like usually in a perpetual state of confusion. It's, you just kind <laughs> of get used to it. Next week, we will talk about socialisation. So how we navigate social situations, what's confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think also socialising with other autistic people compared yeah. to neurotypical people. So probably more focus on the double empathy problem. Yeah. <laughs> But we'll also cover that and eye contact as that comes up. Always. We will also tweet Jamie Milton's paper because I think we've spoke about that much. People are just probably going to want to have that for reference. <laughs> and I've still not read it. Sure, she really is fantastic. Keep me in until you get distracted by my research papers, <laughs> um, which is actually what I should be doing. But yeah, so socialising next week. So thank you very much for listening. We're very grateful. Sorry for the lack of animal analogies this week, but we hope that we've been entertaining nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully.